0: So welcome back to Northwestern University Law Review Podcast Below the Line. I'm the volume 116 Editor-in-Chief Sarah Chansky, and I'm here once again with David Shapiro, who argued Jones v. Mississippi before the Supreme Court in the fall. We recorded our first conversation that you just listened to about this case on Monday, April 19, and then the Supreme Court announced their decision on Thursday, April 22, I wanted to invite Professor Shapiro back for a follow-up conversation to reflect on the decision in that case. So, Professor Shapiro, thank you um, for joining us again. Welcome back um, for another conversation. So really Happy quickly first, and, and thank you, um, an overview of the decision. The majority um, decision that, that came down last Thursday, it was written by Justice Kavanaugh, Um, And according to that opinion, Miller and Montgomery do not require any finding of permanent incorrigibility, either implied or explicit, when a court is sentencing a juvenile defendant to life without parole in homicide cases. The majority insisted that Miller and Montgomery simply require that a, quote, discretionary sentencing procedure when sentencing juvenile offenders is required for a um, conviction of homicide. Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence um, and in agreeing in that judgment, Thomas called for the majority he called the majority out for pretending to follow Montgomery and adopt adopting a strained reading of that case. And what they really should do and essentially are doing is overturning Montgomery. He said, quote, "The better approach is to be patently clear that Montgomery was a demonstrably erroneous decision worthy of outright rejection. And then Justice Sotomayor wrote, The dissenting opinion, she was joined by Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, and her position and the position of the dissent is that the majority got Miller and Montgomery, which would have required a finding of permanent incorrigibility before sentencing a juvenile offender to life without parole. So now that we've had that overview of the decision that came down, certainly there are probably quibbles that one might have with my characterization of the opinions and Professor Shapiro, feel free to correct any misstatements, but I'm just wondering when the decision came out, what was your initial reaction to the decision? Did it surprise you? And if not, what feels predictable about the majority's position, the outcome, and the holding?
1: Uh, Sure, and I I suppose I would um, note one uh, quibble with the characterization, uh, Sarah, just to begin, which which is that um, uh, you know i the the opinion appears to leave open uh a challenge to a juvenile sentence as uh excessive and disproportionate in an as applied uh uh manner and and so um while i i, I agree with you that from a procedural uh standpoint essentially it is discretion uh that is required by the majority opinion in a in a, in a from a substantive standpoint um an argument, uh, that as applied to a given juvenile, uh, a life without parole sentence is disproportionate, um, and, and therefore in, in violation, uh, of, of the eighth amendment, um, is, is certainly, uh, uh, appears to remain viable. Um, in terms of what I, uh, found uh, su- surprising about the, the decision. I mean, I mean, you know, certainly, um, I was, um, uh, disappointed by the outcome, um, it, uh, both, both for my client, um, and for, um, the state of, uh, protections, uh, for, uh, um, uh, juveniles who have committed, uh, very serious crimes. Um, and I, I think, uh, that for, for, for the most part, um, the, uh, opinions, uh, fairly tracked the arguments of the of the parties in in, in the sense that I think um, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, um, opinion for the majority is consistent with uh, the arguments that Mississippi made, um, and and Justice um, Sotomayor's uh, dissent, I think, it's consistent with uh, with with the um, arguments that that we uh, advanced. Um, I, I, one thing that I found interesting and surprising um, was that uh, Justice Thomas uh, broke with the majority um, uh, as to the reasoning and, and that his concurring um, opinion uh, so uh, clearly called out the majority uh, for kind of departing from um Specifically, what Montgomery said, I think Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas uh, both really agree that the majority opinion um, uh, 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 sort of um, interprets Montgomery um, in uh, in in an inaccurate way, um, and they would, as you. Say draw very different conclusions or go in very different directions based on that. Um, but I certainly find it um, interesting and telling and to a degree surprising um, that justices who are thought about um, as being so divergent on the ideological spectrum as Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas um, have uh, a, a, a shared uh, uh, gripe, uh, about the majority opinion and its treatment of the precedent Montgomery.
0: Yeah. So that, um, I also was really interested in that strange, uh, agreement or coming together convergence between the concurrence and the dissent. So why don't we talk about that a little bit more? The, the point, at least for the dissenting opinion, That was really honed in on as this is the point where the majority can't possibly be, can't possibly argue that they are upholding Montgomery. Um, Montgomery states that Miller's holding, quote, does not leave states free to sentence a child whose crime reflects transient immaturity to life without parole. The majority in Jones even acknowledged this just in a footnote. But how does the majority's holding in Jones interact with that particular prohibition from your perspective? And is is this really just an overturning of Montgomery without acknowledging it, do you think?
1: Well, I, I think that if we take the majority at its word that it is not overturning Montgomery, um then well I, I i should be clear i mean to, to begin with what, you know one holding of montgomery was that the holding of miller uh that uh, juveniles who are sentenced to life without parole can't can't be sentenced uh, based on a mandatory scheme montgomery holds that retroactive um and uh the opinion on in jones everyone would agree and quite explicitly leaves That holding in Montgomery intact, that juveniles can't be sentenced uh, to uh, life without parole based on a mandatory scheme. And uh, that rule against such mandatory sentences applies both prospectively and retroactively as Montgomery held uh, take If we take the, the majority uh, at its word that it's not overruling Montgomery um, at all, uh, ha- however, um, then one would have to view um, the statements in Montgomery that uh, only permanently incorrigible juveniles can be sentenced to life without parole as a constitutional matter uh, to be intact. Um, and perhaps even to sort of fill in the question of what makes a sentence um, disproportionate um, for a child for purposes of, of, of the Eighth Amendment. Um, so uh, one could look at it, uh, the decision in Montgomery, either as saying that there's no longer a substantive permanent incorrigibility standard, that there is simply a discretion exercised with some kind of vague sense of proportionality informing it, um, or one could say um, that uh, the purpose of that discretion um, is uh, to to effectuate uh, the permanent incorrigibility rule articulated in Miller and Montgomery. And Jones merely holds uh, that no uh, uh, specific finding or statement, Um, or procedure other than discretion is necessary to carry out that substantive prohibition.
0: So that assumption though, seems to require that by giving sentencing judges discretion, that they will necessarily consider the defendant's age and the defendant's capacity for Rehabilitation. Do you think that that's necessarily true? That simply having discretion means that a sentencing court will automatically consider a defendant's age? As the majority, I think the majority even explicitly said, if the judge has discretion to do it, they will do it because a defense attorney will be obligated to raise that in arguments.
1: Yeah, I I, I do disagree with that assumption. Um, I I think Brett's case tends to uh, illustrate it on on its own, um, where the judge kind of acknowledged uh, in passing that Brett Jones was uh, 15 at the time uh, the crime was committed, um, uh, but does not really discuss um, in any way his, his, his capacity for uh, rehabilitation. So I, I think there were two parts to your question. You know, one is 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 it automatically true that um, a judge would consider youth, and two um, is it automatically true that the judge would would consider um, capacity for rehabilitation? I think the answer to both is no. Capacity for rehabilitation, for the reason I just said, um, and 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 for and and for youth, you know, um, it is it is possible to uh, draw a judge who simply. Doesn't uh, uh, care about the fact that the uh, defendant was um, young at the time uh, of, of of the crime, or uh, even uh, a, a, a judge who might uh, view youth as an aggravating factor rather than a mitigating one. Uh, with the idea being that uh, this is an even more reprehensible thing to do for a child. Um, so, so I do think that there's a flaw in that assumption.
0: So, one thing I want to come back to that we had touched on, I think, in our previous conversation, but stood out to me even more in reading the majority's opinion, was the fact that in oral arguments, you were very careful to be clear that you were not asking the court to require an explicit factual finding on the record of permanent incorrigibility in order to sentence a juvenile to life without parole, and yet in the majority opinion they spend a the entire first section focusing on why miller and montgomery do not require a factual finding on the record which is something that you were not arguing for do you think that they misunderstood you or and i realize you know maybe this is not a fair question i'm asking you to get into the head of of the majority opinion writers, but it just was was very curious to me that they spent so much time refuting an argument that you had not actually made and that you had explicitly rejected that a factual finding is not necessary um, of permanent incorrigibility. Do you have any thoughts on what's behind the motivation for spending so much ink on that particular argument before moving on to what you... At, at least from my listening of the oral arguments what you were really arguing for which was either an implied or an explicit just statement of recognizing permanent incorrigibility in in the juvenile defendant
1: yeah i, I don't i don't have uh any thoughts on the the motivation um uh, uh i i i i will say that um I I argued that um, it it would not necessarily need to be on the record, either implicitly or or explicitly. In other words, that in most cases, you infer, um, based on um, the surrounding law, uh, that a judge understands what the requirements are to sentence someone to a given uh, punishment, uh, and that the sentence therefore reflects an application of those rules. Uh, it was just in this case um, that uh, the Mississippi court's, Supreme Court's remand instructions to the sentencing court here uh, specifically uh, said essentially that as long as you consider youth, um, the sentence is constitutional. Which we viewed as a misstatement of the law and the the fact that uh, in in our view, when uh, uh, a, a, a finding of permanent incorrigibility is is required. Uh, so our point was that you could have an implicit finding, not necessarily in many cases, not necessarily based on anything that the trial judge had to say on the record, um, but based on the presumption that applies in most cases that the trial judge is going to understand the law such that the sentence itself represents an implicit finding uh, that the law has been complied with, and thus that the defendant is permanently incorrigible. Just that you couldn't have that presumption in this particular case because of the uh, erroneous, in our view, uh, in instructions from from the Mississippi Supreme Court. Um, so, um, uh, so, so, so I, I guess I would have liked to see that argument addressed um, in, in 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 the, uh, the opinion of the. Of the court, uh, and and I appreciated uh, that it, that uh, Justice Sotomayor um, you know quoted our brief and and and, and uh, showed that you know we had not been arguing for some kind of a magic words requirement or or necessarily something announced on the record.
0: One more question on um, the actual decision itself. Before we turn to thinking about what does this mean moving forward. Um, The majority states that Miller and Montgomery simply require that a sentence is appropriate in light of the defendant's age. What problems do you foresee in this expansive discretion for sentencing courts or maybe even problems that you've already seen in juvenile sentencing based on this mandate or what, what I read to be a mandate in the Jones decision, the majority decision that once again, quote, a sentence is appropriate in light of the defendant's age. That that's the only expectation or requirement in this discretionary sentencing procedure. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I think you know one one concern about it is is that uh, one would want uh, sentences to not just reflect the kind of individual predilections of a, of a particular judge, um, but to have a consistency that reflects uh, a rule that applies uh, across the, the board so that it's not so much a, a kind of luck of the draw question as to how um, one judge versus another judge uh, might exercise their, their discretion. Um, and, you know, certainly having um, a system in, in, in place where um like people and like, uh, uh, actions, are, are punished in similar ways, um, is appropriate, is, is, is helpful is to the, uh, to fairness, to the rule of law. Um, and obviously even having a rule does not mean that every judge is going to apply the rule in, in, in the same way. Um, but it provides, um, at least a, a, a rule to, to apply that, um, could lead to to greater uh, u- uniformity. Um, Justice Sotomayor points out uh, in her dissent uh, that there is wide racial disparity, for instance, in the imposition of life without parole. Um, and uh, in in my view, having a rule to consistently apply um, is is one check um, against bias, not a not a perfect one, of of, of course. Um, but 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 more effective uh, than than simply exercising one's discretion without really any uh, guardrails or principles to guide that discretion.
0: Yeah, it, her um, Justice Sotomayor is pointing out the racial disparities in sentencing. Certainly, um, is one way to think. More carefully about what discretion is really doing, the work that it's doing, and what pitfalls might there be um, on that note, thinking about what this means going forward, what it, what do you think this court the this decision means for prisoners across the country that have been condemned to die in prison for things that happened while they were still children what's the what is the sense among advocates and also those who are living under um, death sentences or sentences of of dying in prison for their prospects of ever having their stories heard before parole boards' opportunities to demonstrate rehabilitation.
1: Uh, well, I, I think that it suggests, in, in in terms of where the Supreme Court is, that Montgomery was probably the the high water mark. Um, of Supreme Court jurisprudence on uh, juvenile life without parole, um, I think that it is difficult to read the Jones uh, opinion and conclude uh, that there would be a working majority um, for uh, further protections that have already been uh, announced uh, as a matter of federal constitutional law um, from, from the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think the effect that that has um, is to put um, you know new uh, uh, focus on. Uh, state legislatures and state courts. Um, state legislatures uh, to limit or abolish juvenile life without parole as as a policy matter. Uh, state courts to um, uh, to uh, impose limitations either procedurally or substantively um, on um, uh, on uh, juvenile juvenile sentence consistent with state procedural law and state constitutional law. Obviously. Uh, both of which uh, are are uh, uh, a matter of, of state law for decision by state Supreme courts.
0: Yeah. And that leads really nicely into what was going to be my next question for you. I'm assuming that you did not read this decision and just immediately decide that the fight was no longer worth fighting. Things are over. <laughs> um, this court is no longer persuadable. So you discussed or you mentioned focusing on state legislatures, state constitutional protections. What can be done at the state level? Um, is that the the next frontier? Is just this focus on local rather than federal, or are there is there a frontier for for civil rights progress at the federal level, but maybe making an argument in a different way or um, through a different avenue than the federal courts.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, well. So that that's a sort of uh, it, it's a broad question. Kind of you know depending on you know what is the the nature of the particular civil right and the and, and the particular case. Um. Uh, I. I I do think that as a general matter, federal courts um, have become uh, substantially uh, and increasingly more hostile to federal civil rights claims um, and well to civil rights claims generally. um, And uh, that uh, it places a um, renewed emphasis on um, state courts as guardians of, you know, ones civil rights um, uh, in, in in the criminal justice system, um, in 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 particular, um, in terms of different arguments or or approaches, um, uh, I mean, I I think that um, you know, well, actually, I'll I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Federal courts have have been rather discouraging recently, especially thinking about. You know, this wasn't even a five four decision coming down from the Supreme Court. And so that the the six three outcome feels even more discouraging as um, you know how do you how do you chip away at that if you have to if you have to convince two justices and not just one to switch sides. Um, I'd like to end our conversation by shifting back to this idea of permanent incorrigibility capacity for rehabilitation, Justice Alito during oral arguments asked whether permanent incorrigibility or capacity for rehabilitation was a scientific, a legal, or a moral inquiry. How do you think the courts should approach that question? Let's say in a world where permanent incorrigibility was a thing that sentencing courts had to consider, maybe at the state level they've, they've mandated this as part of their sentencing for, for juvenile defendants. Is that a legal question or are there inherently scientific and moral, um, complications wrapped up in that question?
1: Well, I, do, I, I, I do think that it is a question that science, uh, can, can speak to. Um, I I, 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 in terms of, you know, whether it is sort of a, a moral inquiry or is one of the questions that oral argument, um, you know, suggested even a, even a kind of a, a theological one. to, to me, I, I think that's just a, a difference of sometimes, you know the same words are used to refer to different things. um i don't I don't think that anyone was you know, suggesting at any uh, uh, or that any of the state courts that have implemented a permanent incorrigibility rule have have been undertaking a theological inquiry into. Um, the the kind of the state of one's soul and where it was headed um, in the afterlife, say, um so so much as uh, undertaking an inquiry into rehabilitation, um, and that was our view of what um, permanent incorrigibility meant. In other words, uh, is it uh, essentially impossible that you could be rehabilitated? Which is the sort of inquiry. Um, that courts actually make rather regularly, you know, informed by expert and, and scientific opinion a, a, and a range of of evidence. Uh, for example, there was one case where uh, a Pennsylvania court found someone permanently incorrigible in part because their uh, record in prison included being the leader of a white supremacist gang, um, and so you know it it it. it, it, it Strikes me, you know, once we clarify what we're talking about and sort of get out of this realm of is it a moral inquiry, Um, so as as opposed to a judgment um, about future behavior and and recidivism, um, uh, you know, it's something that courts have done um, uh, in all sorts of contexts um, using uh, traditional evidentiary tools and weighing of evidence, consideration of expert testimony, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. So my last question is about the criminal justice system a little bit more broadly. As we're thinking about the capacity for rehabilitation, there is kind of a, an expectation that the, that being part of the criminal justice system, that being in prison then necessarily must be doing rehabilitative work. Do you think, or to what extent do you think our our justice system has the responsibility to rehabilitate those that are in the system? And how well do you think they're fulfilling that responsibility?
1: Um, well, I think it's foolish not to try to rehabilitate people. I mean, right? The vast majority of of, of people who are in prison um, are going to not be in prison uh, for forever, and so um, if if the society doesn't try to rehabilitate people, uh, ultimately it it pays uh, the the cost directly. So I, I you know, I, I view that as a um, pretty straightforward question, it, 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 you know, rehabilitation is beneficial to everyone. It's, it's beneficial to the, uh, uh, the person who's been convicted and, uh, it's necessary to promote, um, safety and, you know, uh, compliance with law in, 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 society. Um, and I'm so sorry, I, I think I forgot the, or the other part of your question, Sarah.
0: Yeah, the second part of my question, maybe maybe you don't feel qualified to answer this question. Um certainly it's it's not an easy one. How well do you think our system does at that practice of rehabilitating? Because it strikes me as rather contradictory to tell people if you show that you're rehabilitated, you can, you know, apply for parole and get out, but if the system itself is not facilitating rehabilitation or even actively preventing rehabilitation It's sort of a pretty vicious cycle that we're putting people into. So my question was, do you think the system is set up in such a way that it can rehabilitate those that are in the system?
1: I, I don't think it's effective uh, as, as, as a means of, of rehabilitation. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not really aware of anyone who really thinks that uh you know that that uh prisons in the United States are doing a great job of of rehabilitating people. I'm not I'm not even sure that uh uh you know that there is consensus among um people in corrections that that's even a goal uh uh of of a there was a time uh when that was uh, very much viewed as uh, a central component uh, of of corrections and and, and its purpose, um, but over time, uh, incapacitation in the sense of being unable to commit crimes while incarcerated, uh, retribution and deterrence, um, I, I think have gained ground at the expense of rehabilitation when it comes to correctional thinking and and philosophy, um, and, and um. And and I think, you know, that is reflected in um, cuts made in educational programming um, in, you know, all all in in all sorts of things that could help uh, prisoners potentially um, rehabilitate to build the skills um, while incarcerated that um, could lead uh, to to employment um, upon uh, upon. Release, um, and that with uh, with the United States, uh, you know, locking up as many people as it does, uh, it just becomes very difficult to manage prison uh, in a way that provides people with uh, opportunities uh, to 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 rehabilitate, um, uh, um, while maintaining this necessity of essentially being. Kind of a warehouse, given the the numbers of people who are sent into incarceration, um, and 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 so uh, ultimately, I think that rehabilitation and uh, reductions in incarceration are, are closely linked, um, and that um, you know, and, and that that rehabilitation uh, in the current system um, is, is kind of, you could be viewed as slapping a bandaid uh, on on a problem that can. Really be dealt with uh, more effectively, or can't even really begun to to be addressed in a meaningful way uh, until there's a substantial reduction in the number of people who are incarcerated.
0: It does seem like a really frustrating and intractable problem, and yet maybe the hopeful thing in all of this is recognizing that despite all of those flaws in the system, there are so many people like your client Brett Jones who have actually demonstrated a capacity for and progress towards rehabilitation, despite all of those things in the system that seem to be working against them. Whatever the path from here might be for Brett Jones, we're certainly hopeful that there will be a path, that this is not the end of his story and of his case. Um, Thank you so much for joining me, Professor Shapiro. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Northwestern University Law Review's podcast, Below the Line, for my conversation with David Shapiro, who argued Jones v. Mississippi before the Supreme Court in the fall. Once again, Professor Shapiro, good luck as you continue to fight the fight despite this heartbreaking setback. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah.